This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, I think Jim is, one, he's so honest He's so loving, he's compassionate, he's quiet, very definitely an introvert, no question about that. But he's someone that you just, he he makes you laugh in his own quiet way. You meet, you marry, and you live with a person you love. But how well do you really know that person? You're about to hear the story of a woman who thought she knew her husband, only to discover that he was a suspect in a decades-old murder. She's convinced he's innocent, but a district attorney and two detectives in New York think he's a killer. So who's right? We begin with Sharon James and her love story. We knew each other, we respected one another. I thought that he was an intelligent man. Over the years, Sharon James had seen Jim Krausnick at work conferences. But in 1997, when they ran into each other again, something had changed. There was a spark that neither quite expected. Krausnick had turned into the silver version of the still handsome and athletic former captain of the high school swim team. A good man who loved his adult daughter, Sarah. And he would always say, My job is to take care of my family. That is my job. That's my first job, my first responsibility. I think I saw that with Jim, and I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part of his family. What was there not to love? Sharon knew Jim had been married before, actually three times before, and one wife had died tragically, but she decided she'd throw caution to the wind. And in 1999, they married and settled down in the Seattle area. Sharon James became Sharon Krausnick. 23 years later, we're still celebrating our love for one another. He had been married, though. Yes. I understood Jim lost his first wife very tragically. I mean, he would share with me how he lost this woman 
that was his best friend, that is, was his soulmate. I mean, he was, he was devastated with the death of Kathy. Kathy Krausnick, his beautiful first wife. They were both so young, Jim had told Sharon. It had happened one cold February day in 1982. When Jim arrived home from work, he found Kathy in bed, dead, with an axe lodged in her head. What he didn't tell Sharon is that at the time, he had been the primary suspect in her murder. I'm Erin Moriarty, and this is my life of crime. We begin with part one of Did She Marry an Axe Murderer? One April morning in 2016, Sharon and Jim Krausnick were just beginning their weekend, relaxing in bed at their home in Gig Harbor, a city on the shore of the Puget Sound in Washington State. And that's when they heard the doorbell ring. So, so we kind of ignored it a little bit. We were just having a lazy Saturday morning, and then all of a sudden the doorbell rang a second time. And Jim goes, well, I better go get it. When Jim returned to the bedroom, he told Sharon there were two men from the Brighton Police Department at the door. And I thought, well, Brighton? Who's, who's Brighton Police Department? That didn't mean anything to me. Sharon joined her husband in their kitchen with the two cops. Their names? Detective Mark Libertor and Detective Stephen Hunt. They had just arrived from New York State. She offered them water and coffee, anything she could do to make them feel at home. But Sharon said she had no idea why they were there until the detectives revealed that they had reopened the case into the murder of Jim's first wife. They said, um, we think we know who killed Kathy and we need your help. In, in, in that type of a tone, that kind of an excited. And I went, oh my gosh, that would be such a relief. Yeah, I just was, oh, that would be a true blessing. The detectives hadn't made any arrests yet, they said. They needed Jim's help first and asked him to go over exactly what happened that day. And Jim... I sat down by him, and and he, he started talking about it, and he, he got choked up. I made, made me sad because it's hard for him to talk about, to relive. Jim got, you know, he, he was visibly upset as he started. They started asking him, well, then, what, did you see something here? Did you see something there? And he was trying to answer their questions. Detectives Libertor and Hunt had already done their own research before questioning Jim at Gig Harbor, digging through the very old case file. And the evidence painted a particularly gruesome picture. On February 19, 1982, Jim Krausnick, then just 30 years old, ran across the street to his neighbor's house, holding his three-and-a-half-year-old daughter in his arms. He was having trouble talking, but managed to say that he thought his wife, Kathy, was dead. The neighbor called 911. Her husband's here and he can't even talk. Okay, there's someone right over there. When police arrived at the Krausnick home, it looked like a break-in had occurred. There was a door leading into the house that had a pane of glass broken out, and there was a mall 
which is like a heavier axe on the ground, leaning up against the wall right next to that. Here's Detective Hunt describing what investigators saw back in 1982. Valuable items were left scattered on the dining room floor. On the floor was Kathy's purse with the contents uh, strewn about. Uh, There was a a tea set on the ground, a silver tea set next to a a black garbage bag, making it look like the burglar was going to put the tea set into the bag. But on the tea set, everything was standing straight up like it was set there neatly. When police went upstairs into the couple's bedroom, they found the body of 29-year-old Kathy. It was one of the most shocking crime scenes the officers had ever seen. The scene was weirdly pristine. It looked like somebody had put an axe in her head once and walked away, leaving no blood trail or blood spatter. She looked like she was just lying there on her right side sleeping curled up in her nightgown. There was no signs of sexual assault, just sleeping. Brighton Police Lieutenant Bill Flood, now retired, was first on the scene. He was moaning, he was crying. Krausnick, who back then had been a Kodak Company economist, told officers that he had left for work that morning at the usual time, around 6.30 a.m. He said he had been gone all day, while Kathy remained at home to take care of their daughter, Sarah. But when he arrived home that evening, he discovered Kathy dead in bed and Sarah all alone. You could tell that the little girl was, um, had been left alone because she was dressed in a, not in a manner that an adult would dress a child. She had several sweaters on. They were misaligned with the buttons. She had several pair of socks on. So it looked, looked obvious to us that she addressed herself. That was really the worst part of it all. Little Sarah had been home when her mother had been killed. It's not easy to interview a three-year-old, but investigators had to know if she had seen something. And at first, Lieutenant Flood thought she did. Sarah told him she had seen a bad man. But the more she spoke... It was clear she was confused. Sarah said that bad man was sleeping in mommy and daddy's bed with an axe in his head. When asked if the man was black or white, she said he was many colors. It is my my opinion, Sarah was referring to her mother, who she failed to recognize as her mother due to the axe and the blood. Cops checked out Krausnick's story. And he had been at work all day, just like he said. Still, when investigators went to talk to his supervisors at Kodak, they learned something that Krausnick had failed to mention. Krausnick had apparently been hired under false pretenses. He had claimed to have a PhD when he never actually completed the program. Many people at the police department thought that Uh, This could have been uh, the reason for the strife between himself and his wife. Maybe some strife, but do you think the fact that somebody lied on a resume and wife found out would end up with the wife having an ax in her head? Doesn't that seem a little bit like an overreaction? It seems very extreme. Uh, You know, I would think that the wife would be concerned about maybe uh, James would lose his job with Kodak. But, you know, again, 
no, certainly no justification for attacking somebody and, and killing them with an axe. If the couple had been having marital problems, no one seemed to know about it. Yes, there was a pamphlet found in the couple's car that listed several services, including marital counseling, but that was about it. And friends and family of Kathy Krausnick said the couple had seemed happy. They had met in high school, began dating in college, and married after graduation. Kathy's sister lived with them for a year and said it was the marriage she wanted. It looked like a perfect marriage. Even after Kathy's death, her father couldn't believe that Jim could have done anything to hurt Kathy. I just didn't think that he would, that he would do such a thing. I mean, had there ever been a real serious problem in their marriage that anybody had heard of? No, not that I knew of. Still, Kathy's friend, Kathy Behe, remembered that Kathy wasn't her usual vivacious self the last time they spoke in the late summer of 1980. Did she seem sad? She just didn't seem as happy as she normally would have been at that time. And that, I think about that often. And there was this. Less than 24 hours after Jim found his wife murdered, his parents drove to Rochester and took Jim and Sarah back to Michigan to live with them, taking investigators by surprise. It seems strange to me that, you know, that he, he would leave in a, an abrupt manner because he lived in Rochester. And, I mean, he just went through a devastating event Mm-hmm. Is it really that strange that he would leave, go with his parents back to Michigan? Well, it he, he, would be the only family he had left, so I suppose, no, it wasn't strange. But, um, you know, by leaving, he removed all access to himself. But that wasn't entirely true. When Rochester authorities followed him to Michigan, Krausnick continued answering their questions and even provided hair and blood samples. Autopsy findings reportedly narrowed the time of death to between 4.30 a.m. and as late as 7.30 a.m., an hour after Krausnick claimed to have left the house. And, and that, the timing of the death is, is the most critical thing. And uh, because if the death occurred before he left for work at 6.30, he was the only one there to do it. If it occurred after 6.30, it was some unknown suspect. So that, that was very critical. With no direct evidence against him, nor any clear motive, police did not charge Jim Krausnick in 1982 or any of the years following. Jim and Sarah eventually moved out west to Washington. He briefly wed twice more before marrying Sharon in 1999. Jim did tell Sharon about Kathy's murder, but he didn't offer any details. Before, you know, when we were dating... Um, he didn't really like to talk about it. I, w- I would ask him, you know, how, gosh, honey, you know, how, you know, how did you, you know, how did you lose your wife? And he said that she was murdered. I went, oh, how awful, you know, how awful. And then I, and I didn't want to pry because he would start getting emotional. And so it, I don't, I, so I wouldn't say, well, how was she murdered or why was she murdered? He did say she was murdered. I said, did they find the person that murdered her? He said, no. Did you do any research on it? No, I didn't do, I, 
No, I'm, I, no, I'm not an attorney. I'm not an investigator. It did strike me a little odd that when Sharon heard that her husband's first wife had been murdered, she never asked him any follow-up questions. She didn't do any basic research. I mean, wouldn't she be curious? But the truth is, Sharon really didn't have any reason to ask questions until that morning when police showed up unannounced at her door. After about an hour of questioning Jim Krausnick, Sharon says the detective's friendly tone suddenly shifted. Did you have anything to do with this? I didn't kill Kathy. I disagree. Well, then... I think you did. This was the first time, Sharon says, that she heard her husband was the prime suspect in Kathy Krausnick's murder. And as you can imagine, she was shocked. I was in disbelief. I thought, that's not possible. There's something terribly wrong here. And then, she said, Jim told the cops to leave. They just kept being aggressive, and I think finally at that point, he said, well, I think we've had enough conversation, and this conversation should end. He didn't call a lawyer then? No, well, he did. No, he did not right away. He, we, we, we got up from the table, and he talked to, um, just, we were just in shock, didn't, thinking, what in the world is going on here? Did you ever ask him point blank? No, I didn't. I didn't have to. I, I didn't have to. You didn't have to know? No, I don't even need to. I know. I know he did not murder his wife. Sharon, how can you be so sure? You only have Jim's word for it. No. Well, when you're married to a man, you know his heart and you know his soul. Jim, Jim could never, Aaron, never in this world do something so horrific. Is Sharon just being naive? Unwilling to see the man she loves in any other light? Well, maybe. But Sharon also discovered something the detectives never mentioned during their surprise visit. Sharon learned that her husband wasn't the only suspect in Kathy's murder. There was another man, a dangerous man, that investigators back in 1982 failed to pursue. If Jim didn't kill Kathy, who did? Someone very, very, very evil did this. Uh, unbelievably evil. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. For decades after Kathy Krausnick was murdered with an axe in her Rochester home, there was little movement in her case. Police initially suspected her husband, Jim, but there just wasn't much evidence. He had never shown any signs of violence and had no criminal history. He was a Kodak Company economist. 
But it turns out there was a violent man living right down the road from the Krausenecks, a man named Ed Larrabee. Everybody from back in that time frame is familiar with Ed. A career criminal, Ed Larrabee had a reputation and a record as a violent sexual predator. Larrabee served several stints behind bars, and at the time that Kathy was killed, he was free and living just a four-minute walk away. Police went to question him shortly after Kathy's murder, but Ed Larrabee wasn't talking back then. So inexplicably, the cops filed their report and just moved on. I asked Detective Mark Libertor why cops didn't even do a basic investigation into Larrabee, like check his whereabouts when Kathy was killed. And is it fair to say the police dropped the ball? In that case, because you've got a sexual predator within minutes of the house and they they don't do anything more than visit him once? I don't know that I'd use the phrase drop the ball. Unfortunately, the officer and the sergeant who approved that report are both deceased. Ed Larrabee was never investigated in Kathy's death until 2014, over 30 years after Kathy Krausnick's murder. When out of the blue... Larrabee contacted the FBI from prison, confessing to the decades-old crime. Edward Larrabee, a convicted murderer, was living just five minutes away from the house. He penned a letter confessing to killing Kathleen before he died in prison. But investigators found that Larrabee's facts were off. For instance, he said the woman he had killed had dark hair, when in fact Kathy was blonde that she was heavyset when Kathy wasn't. He said he sexually assaulted her and then killed her. But investigators at the scene found no evidence of sexual abuse. Detective Mark Libertor told me that Larrabee's so-called confession couldn't be believed. Of the eight or ten points he gave investigators, the FBI, of what the scene looked like, he got one in the ballpark. And that was, he said she was in her 30s. She was actually 29. Everything else, hair color, size, what she was wearing, where she was, the position of the body. Um, uh, no, none of it was even close. Why would Larrabee confess to a murder he didn't commit? Well, at the time, Larrabee was in prison, so he had nothing to lose. But he had a lot to gain. Larrabee in 2014 was terminally ill. He had already made a deathbed confession to murdering another woman, a 27-year-old music teacher and violinist, hoping that his confessions would convince authorities to agree to allowing his remains to be buried outside of prison grounds. And once Larrabee saw that he could get things in exchange for confessions, the confessions kept coming. He, you know, confesses to six or eight murders and three or four people are still alive. Detective Libertor said that Larrabee's confession to murdering a Rochester housewife was only one of a long list he offered up. And then when search warrants are executed in Larrabee's cell, newspaper reportings, clippings from every homicide he claims to have have, um, committed to the FBI are found in his cell. So the information he gave was he was doing research. He had the newspaper clippings right there. There just wasn't enough evidence to tie Larrabee to Kathy's murder. 
But his confession did seem to ignite a new interest in the case. And when the FBI offered the Brighton Police Department new resources, the police chief and district attorney decided to reopen the cold case in 2015. A year later, the Brighton police chief assigned veteran investigator Mark Libertor to take a new look at the case. It was going to take somebody that had a focus, and the focus was solely this case, and that, that person was investigator Libertor. To put things in perspective, at the time of Kathy's murder, Detective Mark Libertor hadn't even begun his career as a detective yet. And now Libertor was close to retirement. His chief says, well, it looks like it's you. For as long as it takes, you will work on this and nothing else. Detective Mark Libertor and his partner, Stephen Hunt, pored over the original case file and discovered that despite many apparent signs of a burglary, the broken glass, the contents of Kathy's purse scattered across the floor, that silver tea set next to a black garbage bag with a shoe print inside, something wasn't adding up. Nothing was taken. There's an officer involved in this case from the 1980s who hits the nail on the head. We in Brighton do not handle a lot of homicides. We do handle a lot of burglars. And this was not a burglary. Libertor and Hunt began to suspect that the burglary was simply staged to cover the real crime, Kathy's murder. And when they looked at the black garbage bag left behind, the detective noticed something that the earlier investigators missed. There was a shoe print inside that looked like it was from a very particular kind of shoe. Because I knew, because I owned a pair, that sole to me looked like the sole on a boat shoe. Anyone that wore a boat shoe in the 80s, um, they all have the same similar wavy pattern. Why was that so significant? Because also in the case file, there was a photograph of the couple's bedroom with a pair of boat shoes on the floor. Detective Hunt explains why to them, this single piece of evidence really made their case. Because it really, really ties James Krausnick to there. I, I called up Kathy's sister, Annette. I called up his two ex-wives. I, and the question that I asked was, what's his favorite type of shoe that he wears? Boat shoe, boat shoe, boat shoe. Everybody said it. If he wasn't wearing his, his work shoes, he wasn't wearing shoes at all, or he was wearing his boat shoes. He wore them all the time. Okay, but lots of people wear boat shoes, right? Why not the intruder? We don't have uh, murderers running around in February in the wintertime wearing boat shoes and killing people. No burglar's going to do a burglary wearing boat shoes with nine inches of snow and 30-degree days when you might have to run from the police. Detectives were convinced that the evidence in the case file pointed to one man, Jim Krausnick, and that's why they planned to surprise him at the Gig Harbor home where he was living with Sharon. After questioning Jim, the detectives knew they needed more evidence, new evidence, to take Jim Krausnick to trial. Back in 1982, DNA had not yet become an investigative tool, and the first investigators at the scene found no significant forensic clues like fibers or fingerprints. But by 2016, the science had finally caught up. We sent the evidence from 82 back to the FBI lab. But the results weren't as useful as they hoped. 
there was no DNA evidence that directly tied Krausnick to the crime. But there was also no foreign DNA indicating that an intruder had been in the home. For investigators, this lack of foreign DNA was key. But is it possible that after 33 years when the DNA is tested, is it possible that there could be foreign DNA on there and it's just been too much time and too degraded to be identified? And I don't know the answer to that because... But it's possible, right? I think it's possible. I think, it, yeah, absolutely. Does that worry you at all? It does not. It does not. It just doesn't. <laughs> but to charge Krausnick, detectives still had to prove that Kathy had died before he went to work at 6.30 a.m. Back in 1982, the forensic pathologist who did the autopsy on Kathy could not say exactly what time Kathy was murdered, only that it was sometime between 4.30 a.m. and 7.30 a.m., an hour after Jim left the house. So detectives went in search of a new expert and turned to a forensic pathologist with a record of celebrity cases. And he told them he could not only narrow the time of Kathy's death, he claimed she could have been killed at a time when Jim Krausnick was still at home. But is this new evidence the result of science? or just another doctor's opinion. Whatever, it was just what investigators needed. On November 1st, 2019, a grand jury indicted James Krausnick. A week later, on November 8th, he was charged with the murder of his first wife, Kathy. An opening statements today for the James Krausnick trial, 1982. On September 6, 2022, one of the coldest cases ever to go to trial began in Rochester, New York, and Sharon Krausnick was at her husband's side. Jim is a decent, loving human being. There is no way Jim would ever, ever have done anything like that. That's coming up in part two of... Did she marry an axe murderer? I'm Erin Moriarty, and that's my life of crime. This podcast series is developed by 48 Hours in partnership with CBS News Radio and Paramount. Judy Tigard is 48 Hours executive producer. Megan Marcus is vice president for podcast editorial at Paramount. Production and editing for this season by Caroline Casey, Annie Cronenberg, Danny Levy, Megan Marcus, Kiara Norbitz, and Alan Pang. This episode was also produced by Mark Goldbaum, Josh Yeager, Jamie Stoltz, Charlotte Fuller of 48 Hours. And finally, a thank you to all of you, our listeners. We owe it all to you, the millions of 48 Hours fans. Don't forget to join me online. I'm at EF Moriarty on X, and we're at 48 Hours on X, Facebook, and Instagram. See you soon.
Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. 